Lesson one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 341. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music. They're online at respectsextet.com, and many of their albums are available for purchase there, and I encourage you to do that. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the show's logo. You'll find him at twitter.com slash Vrabel, V-R-A-B-E-L. Everyone who listens to the jazz session knows how to spell Dave Rabel's last name now. <laughs> I have spelled Dave Rabel's last name at least 341 times on this show, and probably more, because sometimes I do it at the end, too. And finally, thanks to All About Jazz. They carry the show on their website, as do many other people. Uh, you'll find a widget at allaboutjazz.com that you can use to put the latest episode of the Jazz Session on your website. To find it, just go to allaboutjazz.com and type Jazz Session Widget into the search bar and then put the code on your website and let me know, okay? Because I'll mention you in my newsletter. This show is free to listen to, but it is not free to make or to host online, and that is why I need your memberships, because that's what helps me sleep indoors and eat, and I am a big fan of both of those practices. So please do become a member of the show. It's very inexpensive. You can pay in monthly or yearly installments. There are three levels of each. Right now, at the middle or upper level, the next two people who join at those levels will receive Anthony Wilson's DVD CD set Seasons as a little thank you gift. Uh, you may notice that I've been saying that for quite a while now because it's been a long time since anyone joined at either of those membership levels, and it would be cool if someone did. There have been a bunch of members at the uh, kind of uh, first level of membership, which is fabulous, and I'm really, really grateful for that. Uh, but we could use some people at the higher levels too, so please do become a member at thejazzsession.com, and if you do that and you're one of the next two people at the middle or upper level, you'll get that DVD CD set from Anthony Wilson as a little bonus. My guest today is Bob Reynolds. For those of you who have been following me for any well, for quite a length of time, actually, uh, I used to be on the radio, and then I hosted the jazz session. But in between, I hosted a show on an Air America affiliate radio station in Rochester, New York. And I did that show as a podcast also. And then after I was off the radio on the Air America affiliate, I just kept the show going as a podcast for a while. It was called The Jason Crane Show, which was not my decision. That was what the radio station asked. So that went for a while, and I had, you know, kind of political topics one week and music the next, and it went back and forth. And one of the very few people who was a guest on The Jason Crane Show in that brief window of time before the jazz session was formed was today's guest, the saxophonist Bob Reynolds. He uh, tours with... The guitarist and singer, you know, rock superstar these days, John Mayer. And Bob also has his own successful career as both a performer and uh, a teacher. He was in New York City to work on his new record, and he just recently released a live album, which is what we're going to hear from during this interview today. So we'll hear a track from that, and then we'll hear my conversation with saxophonist Bob Reynolds. Thank you. 
My guest is saxophonist Bob Reynolds, and it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks, Thanks for being Jason. Here. Glad to be here. Now, you actually, you were one of the very few brave souls. I think it was you and Dave Binney, who feels like about 40 years ago now, but it was about seven years ago, were on the precursor to the jazz session, which was even more of a shoestring operation than this is. So I thank you for that back in the day, and I'm even <laughs> happier that you're here on a real show <laughs> now. It's great to have you. Glad to be back. Uh, I want to talk about a few things. Uh, we're actually recording this in a Flux Studio, which is in Manhattan, and uh, where you're working on a new record. But just uh, recently, you also released uh, a live record, which is fantastic and features uh, many of the same players. Yep. I thought maybe we could talk about a live life first, and sure. then uh, talk about this new project, kind of the successor to that. Yeah, sure. Um, so that was a, a sort of an accidental recording. Um, it wasn't a. Pl- it wasn't like I did a live record and like I was all set up to do a live record. Actually, we were just talking about this. Uh, you know, the the H four N thing. I mean, this it was a case of recording a couple of shows. Um, it was two. It was January and March, I think, of last year. So two separate shows. So two slightly different band. There was one version with um, Keith Carlock on drums, a couple tunes with him, and, and a couple with Mark Giuliano on drums. But otherwise, and. And then John Shannon's on guitar for one of the bands, the, the band with Mark, and the other was just quartet with Ollie Rockberger on keys and Yannick Wisdala on bass. Um, so what happened? The reason that exists, the reason that live record is is out, was um, I should preface it by saying I hate listening to back to myself. Like, <laughs> like I record the shows, you know, I want to have them because you never know, or for just posterity. But in general, I have a policy of like I like to wait two months. If it's you know if I have my druthers, sure. So it was like I recorded the stuff. We were in the the what did I say March or May. Last May was the last um, we came up and played the fifty five bar. It was the last bit of a little run we'd done. Me and Yannick, um, Mark, Ollie, and John. We only rehearsed for an hour before that show. Literally just went over the tunes and then played the gig. So when I listened back several weeks later, you know, I actually didn't think very much of the show. I didn't. I thought there was kind of some cool stuff in the second set. The first set I thought was not really, you know, worth writing home about. But anyway, time went by. I checked it out and I heard what is track two, um, but that that 
duet thing between Yannick yeah. and I. When I heard that, I was like, this is, I mean, I kind of remembered it from, from how I knew when it was going down that it was kind of something really cool. Because what I'm referring to is track two, you know, I, you'll see I split it up. So it's like tracks two, three, and four of that record are actually one long piece and it's sort of, but they have split points. But I remember the night that that happened, it was the, it was the second till it was the last tune of the second set. Right. And it was like, the place was still full, you know, audience wise. And we just had everybody's rapt attention, like our own included. It was something really magical. I felt like happened there. And, and I knew it was the type of thing that I would never be able to go back, go into the studio and say, let's do that again. It just, you know, it's not the same kind of thing. It happened and it was a special moment and I was really glad I caught it and it happened to sound great too. So then I said, all right, well, I really love this one piece, which is basically a, you know, an improvised introduction to an older song of mine called can't wait for perfect. But the places that we went on this 18 minute journey of this over this one song was like territory I hadn't been in yet. And, but yet it was like, it was territory I'd been in, in my own mind, if that makes any sense, (laughs) I hadn't quite realized yet. Yeah. So it was really fun. And the whole place you could just, when it was, when it was happening that night, you could just feel everybody was like, are the can they keep going? Can they make it go further? Can oh, they did? We did. Okay. Can it go any for? Oh my gosh. It was, it was really a magical moment. So I said, well, I gotta, I gotta put this out somehow. Let me see if there's anything else that can go along with it. And then I, you know, started to go through that show and the previous show. And I found, you know, basically was it seven songs or something. When you put it all together, about seven different things that were really, really represented where I'm at right now you know, how I feel about the music and playing and just, just, I thought it was just really great stuff. And I, and even though, yeah, I'm making a new record right now and, and a couple of those tunes are re-recorded in, in a different setting. I knew that was a very special, um, I'm not gonna say once in a lifetime thing, but it was just a, a special thing. And I was so happy to have it recorded. That I was like, I need to put this out, you know, which is the beauty of live recording. I mean, the, you know, although nowadays it's maybe a little less common, so many of the great records of the canon of this music were yeah. made in clubs yeah just for those moments where yeah. things happen that you just know oh this this was it people who were in this room got to see it exactly. and it's gone yeah and you never and you never know i mean that's like i said that's why i recorded and you know something about i always get there's really good warm sound there at 55 bar and stuff i mean it's you know but it sort of just felt like i got lucky because it, it, it it's not always that way it's not always that good and it just um I knew that there was something special there and it was like, it, it's really great to be able to kind of put that out and say, Hey, here, this existed, this happened. I mean, you know, I wish, I wish I had more recordings like that. I mean, I wish I had more just recordings in general, just because, you know, when you look back at, you know, what quote unquote jazz musicians used to put out back in the day when, when the business was a certain way and more records were made, right. There was just more documentation than I feel goes, goes on now because everybody's kind of, you know, fends for themselves and, you know, you got to pull, pull it all together. It's sure. a little bit more of a to do, but it was fun because it wasn't like, Hey, we're doing a live record and everything's set up and blah, 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 blah. It was just like, this is, this is how it went down. Thank you. 
do you think that the uh, the kind of lack of you know a, some regimented approach to the gig and the fact that you only had an hour to go over to the tune uh, obviously you would have liked more probably but do you think that that contributed yes. to what happened that evening yes uh, because I'd never I sh- I'd never played with Mark Juliana before maybe once I played a gig with him it was Ollie Rockberger's gig I think that's what happened back in January when I did the gig with Keith Carlock on drums that trip I also went to see Ollie perform at a club in town and after Ollie's band Mr. Barrington performed um, Jason Lindner's trio came on Now Versus Now and Mark Juliana plays drums in that and you know so I'd met Mark and everything but we weren't like good friends or anything just acquaintances I heard him I watched him and heard him play in that band and I was like my jaw was on the ground I was like this <laughs> yeah. guy is a freak that's you know? the effect of watching Mark play yeah <laughs> it was just like what you know and we hung out afterwards and just had some drinks and it turns out we're you know born we were born in the same hospital in Morristown New Jersey come to figure he was like somehow Jersey came up and I don't remember what he lives in Jersey and I was like and he said something like oh but I'm from Jersey and so I was like oh you know, really where? Because never know. And he's like, oh, just, you know, Morristown. I was like, what? I was, and I go, I'm born in Mor- I was born in Morristown Memorial Hospital. He's like, me too, you know, like a year later or something. It was really weird. So um, after that, I felt like we were destined to, you know, play together at some point. And John Shannon, although I've known him a long time, we'd never played together before. So I've, ad- I've been a long time ad- admirer of his whole concept but we'd never played like anything other than maybe two of our bands both being on a bill right sure so but then you contrast that with yannick who i've played with for 13 14 year like that guy's like my unofficial md and knows all my music and ollie right. i've played with a ton both in when it's his band and mine so there was a balance between two guys i've played a ton with and two guys i'd never played with and so the, the rehearsal was like a quick run through to just like make sure we had the form of the tunes then we get to the gig and uh, I struggled for the first part of it, I remember, because once Mark started to play, Mark has a very unique style. I mean, it's a very um, sort of a dry and a broken kind of thing that he does. And I would say initially I was having trouble with it once we were on the gig. Like, wait a minute, this isn't how I would imagine this tune going. So I was feeling like I was struggling. But by the end of the first set, I started. he started drawing things out of me that I wouldn't have normally done. Sure. And so by the second set, it was really cool because it was like, it was just some different territory. And that's what's, you know, can be so great about mixing it up, you know, playing yeah. with different people.
and it's great to hear on this record too because he he and Keith Carlock uh, are very different right. players right. Yeah. and both extremely strong players in the way that they play. I mean, they really drive what's what happens in a band, yeah. but in completely different ways in terms of time feel. And yeah. it's really fun to hear what happens in the music as a result yeah. of those two contrasting styles. I was talking with uh, bass player Tim LaFave about this because he plays with both of those guys a lot, and he was like, but they're like night and day. I mean, they're just Absolutely. completely different sounds, you know, so... Um, and yet it, you know, as using with my music myself and then like Ollie and Yannick sort of being the common threads amongst it all, it works. You sure. Know? It's kind of cool. Yeah. So. I'll just mention for the listeners that Keith and Tim, who you just mentioned, and uh, Henry Hay have a band called Rudder and they've been on this show. Folks want to look in the archive. So I'm interested uh, for people who uh, – don't know about your biography you spent years now playing with john mayer and uh, i've seen a bunch of video of you guys playing together over the years ever since the first time you were on and, and even more recently and uh one thing that i really like about the way you play is that i think and i've always felt this way about sax players who also jazz players who also play in rock and pop settings is that your time feel is so strong because that music that music that you play is I think really all about just being locked down in Pocket. time and I think it really comes out in this in the music that you write too you still mm-hmm. retain that yeah and so I wonder if is looking for we seem to be focused on drummers a lot here but is looking for a drummer or looking for a rhythm section that can deliver that uh, is that one of the key things that you go after when you're putting the band together yeah I mean it's no fun to play with a with a drummer that's like you know feels like a wet sponge or something i mean it's just you want somebody that i I should say i want somebody who's got pocket but that can be defined a number of different ways you know i always tell people like um i remember seeing a a performance a couple years ago with greg hutchinson and uh christian mcbride and benny green doing it they were doing like a tribute to ray brown at the blue note and it was like, that is pocket, man. Those guys play straight ahead jazz. You want to dance. You know what I mean? And that's something that I feel like it, it's missing to an extent in a lot of today's, you know, there's so much different kinds of stuff now. But I, I sometimes really miss that kind of that, that pocket, even in swing. I mean, so, you know, listen to Count Basie. We were talking about this yesterday uh, in the studio, like that record, Count Basie, the uh, Sinatra live at the sta- at the Sands with Count Basie and mm-hmm. um, uh, Quincy Jones yeah. arranging. Man, there's a part on there where Sinatra is like, you know, says something like, get ready, we're going to move this building like two inches, you know, down the road, two feet down the road. And when they start playing, it's like, man. That's that feeling. To me, that feeling exists on stage with John and his band, and it exists in like when, like I'm talking about with uh, hearing Hutchinson and uh, and um, Chris McBride and stuff playing. It's it's that deep pocket feel. You know, Ruben Rogers talks about this. He was telling me that when he was teaching some students uh, at a college he was working at, he would uh, make his new bass students come in. And they were all excited, like, I'm studying with Ruben Rogers and everything, you know, whatever. First thing you would have him do is put down the bass and you would put on some Sly and the Family Stone and make them dance, like, in the room. And he was like, they hated it. They were all so, you know, imagine, like, a bunch of white kids just, like, coming in, like, get their lesson from Ruben. And he's like, put down your bass. We're going to dance to Sly. Like, what? That's he's fantastic. like, if you can't dance, like, you know, if you can't even, you know, it's not, not like you have to have all the moves. But if you can't move your body in such a way, you can't feel the – what do you think you're going to do on the instrument? You know, yeah. So time, pocket, that stuff is just extremely important to me. And you know, guys that I've always admired in the jazz idiom have incredible time. Like Chris Potter, that guy's got his time is so good that he 
I would bet on him versus any metronome or computer or any day. I mean, his time is just ridiculous. And what I've learned from you know, him or a Josh Redman or a Brecker or something, it's like the time is in you. It's in, it has to be internalized in you and your instrument. You should be able to, uh, on the, let's say, on the saxophone, play all by yourself and have the feel of time be so convincing that anybody listening, like, hears the rest of the band even though it's mm-hmm. not there, right? And that's kind of my, that's what I'm always hoping to achieve in whatever setting I'm in. And so then when you when you add that with a great feeling rhythm section, and whether we're talking about in the genre matters little to me, but, you know, the pocket is there, then it's just multiplies that effect you know yeah i mean one of my favorite guys to play with in the world is this guitar player named david ryan harris who also plays in john's band plays guitar Sing, incredible singer songwriter and when he and uh jj johnson who used to play in Mayer's band as well and sean hurley who does when like the four of us are playing together man just david on acoustic guitar with one note you know i mean his pocket is so ridiculous it's so much fun to play like to me every every human has a heart so therefore everybody knows what a beat feels like you know it's like it's the number one thing that everybody can relate to Mm. you know singing is probably the biggest thing we think of right everybody has a voice everybody speaks so so singing in lyrics is always going to be like more popular than instrumental music but time is something everybody you know carries with them so yeah. it's like the most you know time and time and tone like those two things are just like everything Is this approach to playing and this this kind of conceptualization of time in the pocket, is that something that you arrived at or something that you feel you had with you from the very beginning? That's a good question. Um, I think I've gotten more – I've thought more seriously about it over the years than I did. I don't think I thought about it as much at the beginning other than I knew I was was attracted to the players, you know – I was attracted to guys who had a great time feel always over somebody who just had like um, uh, vocabulary elements. I sure. guess what I mean. You know what I mean? I always I was gra- I gravitated towards players who were who had the time versus guys who were you could just hear different types of language, right? And then I I mean I don't know I've been a child of the '80s. I grew up listening to all kinds of '80s pop and rock, and like I I just 
I've always felt that. But but in recent years, when I say recent years, let's say over five, even like five to seven years specifically, I've really even thought about getting my time together more in a, you know, like I was saying, like in an acapella manner. Like I want to always have, I always felt like I had great time when I played, but um, I wanted to have even better time when I played like all by myself, you know, just total control of that. without getting too technical kind of for a general audience how, how do you work on that how do you work on getting your time together um just you know with a metronome it's, I mean, seriously just, it's, a, it's as simple as that as yeah actually, it's well it, it's as simple and as, and as complicated hard, right? as that you know um you know my one of my big i tell this to to students and stuff all the time it's like i'm always preaching this but you know one of my big problems with um with a lot of the ways that you know jazz or improvisation let's say gets taught is too much emphasis on you know what notes go over what changes and not nearly enough emphasis on feel and mm-hmm. rhythm and, and time and uh consequently what you have is guys with you know you see somebody reading something out of a book or playing and they, they do this thing where saxophonists do it all the time and it drives me crazy i i used to do it and i try not to do it anymore but you'll say you're trying to learn something and 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 what you do is you go on the easy parts of the horn, you play it fast, and on the quote unquote hard parts, you play it slower. And you know, you're like, so, so you hear some guy working on like, you know, like it, it ebbs and flows. I say slow it down to the slowest you can do it anywhere on the horn, and just that's as, that's as fast as you're allowed to do it. Like, you should have sure. the same dexterity everywhere. And so when you're working with just a metronome and there's no play along record and there's no band to, you know, to rely on, it's, it's just you, you know, so you gotta, you know, you gotta make it happen. I think it was last summer, actually, we, um, well, we, I was touring with, with John and we stopped at Berkeley and did a clinic, me and John and, and Sean Hurley, the bass player. And 
and John actually did something really cool that I'd never quite thought of, which he was talking to the guys in this ensemble about not not necessarily playing with a metronome, but playing against a metronome. So his thing was like, you know, you have to learn how to play with, you know, here's John Mayer, you know, pop star guy in a Berkeley clinic playing just the nastiest rhythm stuff, you know, with the metronome. And he's like, if you, you know, you learn this so that then you can play against it and around it. Meaning, mm. you know, it's a, the, having the great time doesn't necessarily mean that everything is like a uh, quantized, right? It means sure. that you have control of where the, of where the posts are and then you can work around them. Right. The time is inside you. It sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Right. So working. So that's the the thing. Working with a metronome, or whatever. That's it's that simple. Because t- you know, even if I if I'm not warmed up, if I'm doing it today, if I go, oh, I'm going to just play this, play Stella by Starlight with a metronome. I'm as liable as the next guy to you know, not necessarily flip the beat around anymore, but just kind of you know, rush ahead or pull behind. Sure. You, you have to just constantly be really aware of it and. You know, I grew up just playing with play-alongs and, play- and stuff like that and playing with bands. And at one point I realized, man, there's something really missing. And what I realized was missing was that I felt really uncomfortable playing the sax by myself. I only felt comfortable if I had a band to play along with. And I was hmm. like, this is wrong. Like a piano player can sit down and play by themselves. A guitarist can. And, but yet I feel like something's missing if I don't have a whole band. And I started saying, I, you know, I got to get this together. Sure. I wanted to ask you too about the idea of of concision, the idea of being concise. Uh, I I know I'll go to hell for saying this, but I still think that the best music Branford Marsalis ever made was was Sting. I agree with you. I completely and, agree. With cool. You. Good. We Branford, can, if you're listening, I agree with him. <laughs> we can be there together. That's lovely. It's getting warm in here. Um, and one of the reasons I think that, in addition to just the music kicking ass, was that I thought he is a master at being able to say exactly the right thing in the very small window provided to him. Yep. So to bring it back to you now, uh, I watched a ton of performances that our folks can find online by putting your name in YouTube of you and John. And there are moments where you get a longer time to play. There are you know, some pretty actually sizable saxophone right. features. But there are also moments where you know it's what a guitarist might normally be doing in the band yep. and you're fulfilling that solo role. Yep. And so I just wanted to ask you about uh, what – uh, what, if any, effect that's had on how you make musical statements, not only in that band, but when you're then recording your own albums and your own music, how you approach, you know, the first track is 20 minutes versus the first track is five minutes. Right, right. Well, uh, first of all, you know, and this is something I'll, I'm always, I'll continue to deal with, is like recording and live are two different things. I mean, unless sure. it's a live recording, right, they're they're two different things. So you kind of have to put on two different sets of glasses to view them with, but you don't have to. That's how I'm. I'm trying to view it. Um, <clears throat> so one of the one of the really great things about me about me I said that really wrong about <laughs> I didn't finish the sentence. The great things about me getting to play with John um, <laughs> for for my own benefit was like I always. I mean I love that. I, I, somebody said to me once like Oh you know Oh you had to like too bad you had to like go sell out and take that pop kick or something like that. No you don't get it like. <laughs> Like I love the Branford. Like when I grew up, like you couldn't, I couldn't have done anything more fulfilling than get to be Branford playing with Sting. Like to me, that was like the best thing ever. Yeah. And you know, I didn't, I haven't gotten to to do that, but I've sort of got the next best thing. You know, for our generation in a way. So I love that set. I love getting like this. Here, I know exactly how much space I have to work with, and I want to put something really you know, good in there. And what always drove me crazy and and still drives me crazy is like, I can't stand hearing a, like a sax player who gets his eight or 16 bars to shine in some, 
non-jazz setting and thinks he has to prove to the world that he studied John Coltrane's language. Like, wrong, you know, like, (laughs) eh, that is not what, you know, I mean, I'm not going to name any names, but I've seen it so many times in different scenarios. And it's just like, it makes my shoulders go up, makes the hair stand up on the back of my neck. It's like, it just doesn't, for me, it's not, it's not fulfilling to hear that. So it's not about, so those spaces, getting to fill those spaces, to get back to your question about how has it affected me, what happened was playing, doing those things with John allowed me to, to be me in a sense that I hadn't quite got to do uh, when, I'm, when I was playing in other settings, mm. you know, right? So it wasn't like I had to change and go, oh, gee, how do I like dumb down my playing for this gig? No, it was like coming home. It was like this is, you know, I, I subscribe to the Charlie Parker theory, which is try to play clean and look for the pretty notes. I mean, that's, you know, that's that to me, that's it. So in that setting, it's like, I like to like much like Branford does with Sting. He always found like the really beautiful notes that were just outside of being like common and yet they weren't outside, you know, yeah. like that's, that's the, the place I like to live is like, you know, all his parts are as singable as anything Sting ever said. Yes, sings. exactly. Yeah. It should be singable and it should be beautiful, but it should but I like it to have moments of just where you go, Oh, what was that? You know, but not but not like cringe moments, you know, sure. not like, it's not like out for out's sake. It's just like exploring like how are the different ways you can put you can put uh motivic ideas and things together over that, you know, maybe over a tapestry that's literally one four, you know? Yeah. And man, I could sit there for days and just come endlessly come up with ideas but it's about it's about putting ideas together for me it's about putting ideas together in in melodic phrases not just it's not it's never been about like how many different substitute changes can i put over mm. the top of one four and that's that kind of just doesn't do it for me when i hear other people do that i'm not i'm not into that you know i'm into yeah. i'm into like how can it be you know sing singable beautiful i I was telling somebody once about about like playing with John about these scenarios, which is, and I stand by this, which I feel like I can bring any audience along for a ride with me, no matter the size of the audience. So it could be 16,000 people on a gig with, with Mayer, right? And I can do whatever I want. We could be playing like, you know, sometimes we play this tune Vultures and it breaks down to like me and drums at the end. I could play as quote unquote out or as all kinds of whatever wacky stuff I want because I know how to get the audience involved first, you know, and I'll do. And so it's like, it's peppered in there. Like I can, there's no dumbing down. There's, I get to play however I want. It's just that I know how to engage with the listeners. Cause I'm a listener too. Like I'm sure. not going to play some stuff that I wouldn't want to listen to, you know? So, and people will come on board for that. It's like, it's like you're having a mini conversation. You're, you know, you're meeting somebody at a cocktail party. If, if you just met and they say, how are you doing? You don't go, uh, not so well. My grandmother just died and my brother's got AIDS. You know, like you, that's not the first thing that you say. You know, you, you like there's pleasantries. There's a little bit of like small talk. Sure. It kind of that's, that happens like microcosmically with, in those situations um, for me anyway. And it's like I've found that. There's really no, there's really no difference in the size of whether it's 16 people or 16,000 people. It's like, you know, the rhythm, the the melody, all that stuff. If that's there, people feel it. And, you know, it's not about like, oh, he's playing weird jazz. Stuff. Like, I never want to be that like, oh, it's, we just went into jazz land. Thing, right. You know, I, that, that kind of drives me crazy. So I've, this really long winded answer. How does this come back to my own stuff? What I found was that after doing, after getting to do what I do with John for a while, when I came back to just playing um, my 
my music, my leading my bands or whatever, I felt less of a need to prove myself mm. in a in a musical way. Like when I lived in New York, um, I always carried it on my shoulders that like somehow I needed to prove that I was as good as you know name start to name other sax players, right? Like as if like all right, here I go out to play a gig and you know. Maybe somebody's going to be in the audience and like if they're, you know, just this weird baggage. There was just always hanging over me like this need to feel like I had to let everybody know that I could really play, you know, whatever. And and now I don't, I don't think about that at all anymore. So, it, you know, if I have my tune and it's 16 bars, like, you know, that song we were just listening to in the studio, I don't, there's, I don't need to fill up every single measure with all sorts of stuff. Live it might happen, but it doesn't, it doesn't need to be that way for me. So, so the thing with John allowed me kind of like, like I said, it initially allowed it allowed me to be myself in a way I hadn't yet got to be. Mm. And then to bring that back to my own thing, to be more of myself when I was, you know, dealing with my own music. It's interesting the thing you say about bringing the listener along because uh, you and I spoke briefly via email. Uh, I had just done this presentation at this Jazz Times conference last week here in New York and was talking about telling a story and how important I think that is for musicians to do. And in my mind, one of the reasons that jazz has a tiny audience is because of the way it's presented and the fact that it seems uh, like something you can only have access to with specialized knowledge. And what you've just said is that you can bring anything into the context of the music as long as you've set up that inviting context first, which I think is is exactly right. And it and it doesn't sound like a dumbing down. It just sounds like understanding where people who are listening to the music are at, a real cognizance of the audience. Right. Sounds like what you're talking about. Well, you know, one of the – I don't know how what the right word to, to put here is, but sort of like one of the tra- tragedies of the – mass jazz education world that's so prevalent in you know the u.s right um is that if you're a young player and you're good and you come up through the school system you come up these days um getting feedback and encouragement from other jazz musicians right so i always used to call it like the ooh ah thing like at berkeley if you were playing a recital you know you were 
you were trying to get, I mean, I can only speak for myself, but there were these things where somebody, you could watch somebody playing a recital and then they started to step outside and play this diminished pattern and, you know, you hear all the kids and now you go, oh, oh, you know, and it's like only the the freaking kids at Berkeley are going to do that. No other, you know, regular <laughs> Joe is going to, you know, do that. And so it's becomes like a, you know, sort of like a, a vicious cycle because, that you get this positive feedback for doing these very like musicians only things right and um you know like this course doesn't apply to everybody but i think to the majority of people so you then you think well that's what's cool and i need to do more of that you know and there's just a general like lack of experience for performing for audiences who are not you know familiar with the music so you know, I don't feel like it's my crusade to make people on earth like jazz, right? I mean, what the heck is jazz anyway, right? It's like, are we talking about a couple, you know, uh, singing show tunes at a Holiday Inn, you know, bar? Or are we talking about Wynton Marsalis? Or are we talking about Kenny G? Like, you you can't possibly put that moniker on, on, what, on the many different forms. But improvisational music, I think... What can be so great about it for audiences who are not familiar about it, what they always come up and say to me, whether it's a show of mine or, you know, when they see me play with John or something, it's like, it's it's exciting in a way that other music they listen to isn't because they do feel this sense of like a, a progression of like a journey of some sort happening, you know, and I, I truly still believe that in order to really get excited about good jazz, you need to see it live. You, I think you need to see some good jazz live. If you see bad jazz live, you, that's it. You're turned off probably forever. But if you see if you see really good jazz, uh, I'll give you an example. When I was uh, in college, I met my wife at the time, my girlfriend. Her dad is a big music lover, and had been trying to get her into Joshua Redman like over the years, you know. But she was a high school girl, no interest. Meets me, we start dating in college. I take her to a Joshua Redman show at Berkeley, and and it was his when he had that quartet with Aaron Goldberg and Ruben and and um, and Hutch. I mean, now that's an exciting show. I mean, that's. There's a guy, you know, who knows how to put on a show. And it's, there's no sacrifice to music. The music is incredible. But the, you feel the energy when those guys play. You you see the interaction. You sense it. I mean, she came out of that concert, you know, a lifelong fan now because of that. And I had similar experiences taking to people, taking people to things when I was in New York. You know, like the right things can get people really excited. So I don't know. It's just a feel. It's that thing that should should happen. With improvisation, it's like it's it's um, you know we're in this together, meaning me and the audience. Like that's how I want to feel anyway. I want to feel like what I'm going to play is going to be a reflection of what you're going to reflect back to me, and and hopefully vice versa. Sure, you know, and and that's to me that's important. It's not about like did the guy in the back of the room go, oh yeah, check mark, he just played that lick, so he's he's okay in my right. book, you know. <laughs> but I but you know I carried that around for a while. I kind of thought uh, that's what it had to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I want to talk about what you're doing uh, in terms of jazz education in a minute. But uh, although YouTube comments are generally where humanity's worst side comes out, I do notice that in the YouTube comments under a lot of the clips of you playing with John. Uh, that people say things about the way you play that are usually reserved for people talking about, like, you know, bootlegs of current pop bands or, you know, rock bands or jam bands. They, like, they remember which versions of your solos on certain tunes oh, they right. like and that kind of thing. Or they just use language, you know, like regular language, like people talking about music. Right. That is divorced and happily divorced from 
all of what you were just talking about, that idea of they're commenting on this scale pattern that you played at this point in the tune. Right. They're just commenting on how the tune affected them right. emotionally. Right. And I thought, well, that really – I mean, you're do- that is proof that what you're saying is, at least in this case, working. That yeah. people are being affected by a saxophone solo. Yes. No matter what uh, technical ability they have to parse that solo into anything. Right, right. I mean, it, it's, it goes back to that kind of accessing – emotion in the moment you know for me that's what it you know what you're what you're dealing with i mean i had a woman at a show we did in atlanta come come backstage afterwards and she was in totally in tears from this song do you know me this ballad that we would do like just you know that was really i mean i was sorry that she was crying but that was really cool like you know it was affecting and i think i mean that's what i want that's that's to me the most important thing it shows that like this incredible connection can happen you know right there on the spot between people who don't know each other or whatever i mean you know what you're saying about those comments from people um yeah it's it i love that seeing that people get it and it's like i'm not doing there's no leather pants or sequin shirt involved i'm not playing the saxophone <laughs> parallel to the ground you know what right, i mean while you're on your I knees hate that right. shit. sorry you know for cursing on your show but you know this is like my life's like str- struggles like where do i like for the longest time and i still continue to be like i'm not quite jazzy enough for the full jazzers and i'm not and i'm de- and i'm not smooth jazz i don't know but i grew up just like i love kirk whalem as much as i love chris, chris potter you know what i mean i just so somewhere in between all this stuff, I hate the silly dilly showmanship. I think it's I think it's you know unnecessary and it's a cheap trick and it's a way out of um, people who don't actually know how to deal with their craft. I mean that's just my opinion, but it's it'll never be me. I'll, you, I can't do it. I can't do it with you know any sincerity. And but I think there is a middle ground. You know, I try to just keep work. I, I want to be like able to do anything and everything I possibly can as a saxophonist, right? I want to be able to always be in a situation with my own playing where I can drop by and sit in on these tunes. I can deal with anything, however complicated the music and, and, and enjoy it and bring what I want to bring to it and have all this stuff. But then what I like to do is just not use it. Mm. You know, like um, when I was in college, one of my professors who I love, this guy, Hal Crook, he, he did the thing in class once that stuck with me so memorable we had an ensemble and uh he was trying to express a particular improvisation technique and we were all supposed to do this and there was a a french piano player who was giving him a hard time about it and he was saying well you know how i'm not going to do the french accent but um how that's not a that's not a pianistic technique you can't do that on the piano and Hal, who's a trombone player but is also a phenomenal piano player said oh really so he comes over and he you know, scoots the guy off the panel bench and he counts off the band one, two, uh, uh, and proceeds to just completely demonstrate and just embarrass the heck out of Frenchie. Like, you know, like not only can you do it on the piano, but a trombone player just came over and schooled you, you know? And he goes, look, would you rather be a drummer that can swing and chooses not to, or a drummer that can't swing and chooses not to? And I was like, that's it, man. That's that's exactly the method like you know be able to do as anything and everything and then choose you know you don't have to do everything all the time but you'll always be able to tell a player who's got reserves you know who's like you know what i mean like i can watch aaron goldberg play the simplest thing and it and i don't go boy he's not very good you know what's behind there you know and yeah. he, and that's what people i think what you're saying about the comments people recognize like wow i felt something there was an emotional thing that happened but you know 
you you realize it's not a cheap trick either. It's it's authentic, it's sincere, and there's depth to it. Sure. You know? I spoke uh, yesterday morning with the drummer Barry Elshul, who uh, has been on eighty gazillion records, and he's mostly known as a as a free player, kind of one of the the, the left of center avant garde scene. But he grew up. Uh, just totally playing in the pocket, you know, bebop and hard bop, and he played with Art Pepper and Sonny Rollins and all these guys. And he said exactly what you said, that same idea that I have all that stuff inside me so that if I choose, if there's a moment in the song, and he was talking about free meaning, I feel free to make any choice at any time. So if there's a moment in the song where what I need to do is lock into swing in 4-4, I can do that. I have that, that inside me. Yeah, and if I need to be out in the outer space, I can do that too, which I think is really cool. I mean, that idea that to have all the tools, but just to choose the ones that are appropriate for the moment that you're in. Right. I mean, if you call a plumber to fix your toilet, you're not going to be impressed that he shows up with a toolkit of things to fix a Ferrari. Right. It doesn't, it's not, <laughs> thanks, but go away. Right. I'll just call a regular exactly. plumber. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so, you know, it's so much can be done with, with so little. I, I was talking with the, the saxophonist Ben Wendell recently, and he was, I'm going to mess up what he said, but we were talking about um, composition and he said something about like, what did he say? Like minimal, um, minimal stuff, but maximum. Um, God, Ben, I'm so sorry if you ever hear this. But basically, he's <laughs> talking about like using a few tools and then you maximizing how sure. you use them. You know, extrapolating as much as you can from it. I mean, for me, things like uh, learning how to like telling a story is part like setting. You know it's not just a stream of consciousness thing. So it's like guys going back to the guys that I admire as players, you know, uh, whether it's, whether it's a Pat Metheny, a Redman, a Potter, Breck or whatever, like they know how to deal with set up motives. And then like, it's, you know, sort of exposition and development, you know, there's like theme and there's like restatement of theme. I mean, of course, when you're not playing, you're not saying, okay, now, you know, I'm going to play this, but it's, it's a mentality of like, setting up things and then altering them and then returning to them and sure people get that you yeah. know it's like like i said before it's like but i it's not it's not for it's for me but i'm a listener yeah you know i'm a listener as 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 i'm also a performer and for people who don't believe that's not possible listen to some of michael brecker's own records then listen to a brecker brothers record then listen to him with Joni on the shadows and light album and then listen to like still crazy after all these years one of the great pop sax solos of all time and that's all the same guy right. he's just bringing the right part of michael brecker to bear exactly on whatever the situation and, you know and i get the question all the time like oh do you use different you know mouthpieces for this? no i don't you you know not at all. Yeah. You know, I just I, I just make choices based on the context I'm in, you know. Sure. But I never feel like there's a, you know, something I can't do because I'm in a certain place because it's not about like I have an agenda of things that I need to express and if I don't get to ex- you know meet that agenda then somehow it wasn't a um, successful experience. You know, my agenda will be formed from the context and so that will te- that will inform like what I'm going to hear, what I'm going to feel, what I'm sure. going to play. Thank you. 
So with all of that background uh, in mind, can you talk about the new record, the one that's uh, being mixed in New York right now, and, and maybe how some of this comes to bear? Yeah, well, project? let's see. I think um, well, there's 11 tracks on it, and I think uh, one of them, one of my tunes is, is over seven minutes. Probably all the rest are about five. You know, so that kind of tells you something sure. right there. It's um, as I as I continue to make friends with the recording, as I, you know, I took about two or three weeks of a break hearing it between recording and mixing, and now I'm hearing it again. And you know, what I'm realizing is, um, it's not a, it's a it's a jazz record, you know, and but it's not um, it's not a blowing record. It's about the songs. It's about the texture. It's about the overall concept of the thing and more like a pat metheny record would be where you would have a song and you know pat might play but there's not it's not about like everybody in the band takes a solo and there's trading fours it's about a statement of a song sure that's where i'm coming from with this you know there's some i mean just fantastic musicians playing with me eric harland on drums and ollie rockberger on piano and, and organ and keys uh john shannon on guitar um aaron parks on piano uh yannick wasdala on bass and Bashiri Johnson on percussion and John Mayer's on two tracks, which are just slamming. Um, and it's just gro- it's like groove and song and melody, but it's not a you know. There's some challenging stuff on there. I mean, there's also it's my 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 um, penchant for odd time signatures and stuff hasn't gone anywhere. It's still in there, you know. But I like to I always like things to just sound and feel good. It's never about like uh, you know, hey, I wrote this tune that's in twenty six seven, you know, sure. blah blah blah. I think it's just sonically, it's um, it's maybe a little more dense than other stuff I've gotten to do. It's not a live record either, so we have again. It goes back to what we were talking about before. I'm getting a chance to kind of explore options that you can only do in the studio. And one of the things I've been doing more of live, which I hadn't done for years, but I used to do years ago when I played with a guy named Jonah Smith. I had started using a delay pedal mm. um, on the sax, not for weird effects, but just I use it as a like a a note lengthener, like in certain. It actually started, the story behind it is that uh, we had a guitar player who lived in Spain, and so he couldn't always be here. So when he wasn't here, we played gigs as a four-piece, like Rhodes and uh, the singer Jonah played Rhodes and sang. So Rhodes, bass, drums, and sax, and when the guitar wasn't there, there was something missing from his presence. So I started using this Line 6 delay pedal as a way to see if I could basically, you know, do these big kind of... Um, textures, right? Sure. And it was, I had a lot of fun with it, and so I've continued using it. And so some of that is represented here. It's on a live life for sure. Um, and it's also represented here. It's, it's, you know, I use it as something to actually play with. It's not like an after effect, like, oh, you know, whatever. Let me throw this on and see how right. it sounds. It's a, it's a device that I actually use in real time. But um, yeah, the songs, I man, you know, it's all, for me, it's about the, it's about the songs and then making statements on those songs that, 
are coming from a really sincere place. I mean, this is a one thing that's different for me about this record from anything I've done before is that there's three cover songs on here. Um, and they are not jazz standards. They're just tunes I really dig. One of them is the to- song Everlong by the Foo Fighters. Mm-hmm. And another one is Creep by Radiohead, which although it's been done a million ways, it hasn't been done this way yet. This is a very, <laughs> there's a really, this thing is really happening. Um, it's a death metal version. You can yes, tell everyone. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Well, you, you gave it away, Jason. Sorry, I didn't but, mean to. Yeah. Um, and then we did a, a cover of a, of a song called Holocene by a, a guy slash band named Bon... I will say it wrong, but Bon Iver? Bon Iver. Bon Iver, I guess. Yeah. Um, which I just... I love this guy's stuff. And we all, we all, from Matt, the producer, to pretty much everybody in the band was familiar with it and like really digs that stuff. So it was... What I think is really great about it is that I'm getting to see the covers, you know, mix in with my originals, and it and you and it all feels like it goes together. It's you know, it, I don't think anything uh, sticks out like a sore thumb. So, and that's part of that was Matt uh, Matt Pearson who's producing the record. Part of that was his influence and in, like encouraging me to put those things on there. And um, you know, so I'm really you know I'm just really excited about it. and the songs that John played on. He played on two songs of mine, um, and really just brought exactly what i wanted him to bring i mean he just plays the hell out of the guitar man. it's so funky it's so killing and it's uh so he he's on like a kind of an up-tempo thing and also a ballad i wrote specifically for the two of us and just to kind of capture i wanted to capture some of what we do you know when i get to when i'm playing in his band yeah um because that's just a really big part of my my approach my musical you know identity and i felt like i wanted that represented so Normally on this show, I'd be asking you more intelligent questions about the album, but this is a maybe unique but certainly rare episode of the show where I haven't actually heard the record that we're talking about, so right, right. Uh, I can't follow up too much on it. Right. Um, I do want to ask you, though, about another thing that you do, which is uh, – and we've been talking a lot about jazz education and its, <laughs> its pitfalls, uh, and you have started to educate people uh, using the magic of the internet. I thought maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, so I have the I have a website where I basically do um, I have students you know around the world. It's like uh, 
little online community um, and I do video lessons for them. And some of them are things that I just I continue to develop and put out that they that I know that they all need to hear and and see. And some of them are specific requests, you know, from the students. What I uh, what's great about this um, is that I found by teaching individually, and I think I was telling you this before, but I'll just repeat for people listening. At one point after I moved from New York to LA, I was still giving lessons to people long distance through like Skype. And because people were like, oh, I'm coming to New York, can I get a lesson, blah, blah, blah. So this kind of built up. I had a few people just spread around the globe that I would give the occasional lesson to. It wasn't anything regular. It wasn't like every Tuesday at such and such, I see Joe. Um, But one day I had a lesson with a guy who's a 47-year-old golf pro in Jamaica, this English guy. And, you know, he's just picked, he was playing the alto after years off and blah, 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 blah. Then I had in the same day a lesson with a 17-year-old sax player in Ireland who's like, you know, young kid and really playing on the tenor. And then I had um, that also that same day a lesson with a guy in Hong Kong who was probably in his 30s. And and what struck me beyond being tired from dealing with the long days of all those time <laughs> differences was, you know, I said very um, similar things to all three of these guys not because I was, um, you know, not not out of being lazy, but they all had different questions, and my answers sort of. I was like, well, my my answers sort of went back to similar places, and it was like, you know, uh, this could be, you know, what I'm saying to one of them would, I'm sure, be beneficial to all of them, right? And then the that was what put the idea in my head, and what really solidified it as being something that could could work was the 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 gentleman in um, in Jamaica. He was like. We had another lesson, and he taped it, like he recorded his his screen or whatever. And then I saw him again a few weeks later, and he said, "I'll be honest with you, Bob. Like when we had that lesson, it went right over my head. But in the two weeks since, I've watched that video like eight times, and like you know, on the sixth time, I got it. And he was like, this is really, really helpful.'" And so that was sort of what convinced me that this could be a viable thing. You know, you can't, you know, as great as a one-on-one lesson is, it's like you can't pause it and rewind it. It happens and it's over. And so that was the genesis of it. I've now got like 130, 140 lessons in there. And it's, you know, I have members of different um, ages and all, I mean, literally from 16 to 60 years old. Um, it seems to be a lot of like post-college guys, a lot, I would say like in general, it's more like intermediate and advanced. I've got a couple guys and I won't name anybody's names, but who are like in the, who are total pros, like Grammy women winning, you know, it's sort of like surprising, but they're digging it too. They're like, finally, like, man, this is great to just like, it's just good, um, for inspiration and keeping, you know, fresh ideas going, sure. but, um, it's a lot of fun. Like I, um, and Do people pay per lesson or is it a no, subscription? No, it's per month. Okay, per it's month. like, yeah, okay, subscription great. thing, kind of like, you know, what you do, like per month or per quarter or per year, you know, whatever works for them. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, once you become a member, it's like, I haven't yet figured out a way. I'm kind of working on a couple of things to to make some more delineated, like, paths of study, if you will, but it's sure. a little bit hard. I don't know as, I don't know when you're coming in where you're at, right? So I just, everybody can see all of the lessons and kind of, you know, normally what happens is people start to poke around and they go, they find something that immediately they're struggling with and they'll start to watch a bunch of videos on tone or time or something, you know, and then that just, you you know, over time leads you to one thing. There's a, a forum where we all can interact. So people can not only ask me questions, but post videos, post, you know, recordings themselves and, you know, get feedback and, it's just a really cool thing because at the end of the day, like I used to write so many emails to guys who would ask me 
the same questions, you know? And I was just like, I can't keep doing this. And, and so it's been great to, I write the answer and everybody can see, everybody can see it. And then we can kind of keep the conversation sure. going, you know, and there's some really good guys in there who add a lot of value to it, who are just, you know, who have a lot that they already know and do a great job of it, of sort of sometimes I'll do a video on something and then somebody will have a question and one of the other members will kind of step in and add or clarify certain things. And I'm like, wow, that's really good. You know? <laughs> Tell people where to go to find uh, the um, Well, it's, you can go to uh, bobreynoldsmusic.com and it's a sort of a subdivision of that, which is, well, I'll just say you can go to videosaxlessons.com. That's an easier domain to okay. remember. Um, Fantastic. Get started there. My guest is Bob Reynolds. He's got a live album that came out recently called A Live Life and a forthcoming album, uh, which isn't even titled yet, but uh, we'll, I'll let you know about that as soon as it comes out. You can go if – if you go to bobreynoldsmusic.com, there's a, great, there's a little sign-up page where I'm just, you know – letting people know as it as things develop fantastic well it's such a pleasure man i'm really glad uh, you got in touch and that we were able to do this again and i wish you all the best and i hope you'll thanks, come back jason yeah absolutely and good luck with the show it's really really cool thanks a lot Bob. music from Bob Reynolds and his CD Alive Life and he's also got a forthcoming record not even titled yet but it'll be out before too much longer so keep your eyes open for that you'll find Bob's website linked at thejazzsession.com in the show notes to this show 
This is The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Please do become a member if you like what you hear. It's cheap, it's easy, and it will help keep the show going. And by help keep the show going, what I really mean is it will help keep me alive. And that's what keeps the show going. It is That is literally the case, that if there were not members of this show, I could not pay my rent or eat. And so uh, that is what keeps uh, me going, and if I keep going, then the show keeps going. So we could call this the Keep Jason Crane Alive membership campaign, but I prefer to think that you're supporting the jazz session and just tangentially keeping me from being dead. Until such time as the show ceases to exist and the world collapses, I encourage you to get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and then come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.